You may be seated. Lord, we, we come to you this morning and pray that you'd help us clear our minds and our hearts of any distractions, be they earthly or from the enemy. I pray that you'd prepare our hearts for your word and that you would just teach us that which you wish to teach us and help us live it out in our lives according to your perfect will. For your glory, I pray that you'd encourage your people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. The words of Max Lucado have been bouncing around in my head this week. I want to share a quote from one of his books, which he wrote some time ago. There is a window in your heart through which you can see God. Once upon a time, that window was clear. The glass was clean, the pane unbroken. You knew God. You knew how he worked. Then suddenly, a pebble broke the window, a pebble of pain. Perhaps the stone struck when you were a child and a parent left home forever. Maybe the rock hit in adolescence when your heart was broken. Maybe you made it into adulthood before the window was cracked. Whatever the pebbles formed, the result was the same, a shattered window. Cracks shot out from the point of impact, creating a spider web of fragmented pieces. And suddenly, God was not so easy to see. Have you been there? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, that's where I'm at right now. I share that because as we get to Esther 3, I believe there were many Jewish people who may have had that same cracked window when it comes to their perception of God. Before I get to chapter 3, we've got to review just a bit. You remember Esther chapter 1? The Persian king Xerxes had issued an edict to banish his queen Vashti and that a replacement be sought. Chapter 2, we met two Jewish people in his city, Mordecai and Esther, and we saw how God used the location and timing of their lives so that Esther could fill that opening for queen and Mordecai could overhear a plot to kill the king both of which God would use to help bring about a great deliverance for the Jews. But that leads to the question, what did the Jews, what would the Jews need delivered from? That's what brings us to chapter 3. We're going to meet a man in the Persian Empire named Haman. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Esther chapter 3. Verse 3, as after these things, verse 1, excuse me, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. In other words, he's second in command in the land. As many leaders as there are throughout this empire, which stretched from Pakistan to Egypt, Haman was now raised to second only to the king. Verse 2, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Not only is he second in charge, but when you're in his presence, you bow. Verse 
you bow. End of verse 2, but Mordecai did not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And if you're like me, you want an answer recorded from Mordecai here. You're like, you want something like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Something like, hey, I only have one king. I will not bow to you. And if it costs me my life, it costs me my life. We don't have that. But what we do have is his actions. And you know, sometimes actions speak louder than words. What happened after they asked him that question? Why do you transgress the king's command? Verse 4, it says, When they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. They kept badgering him, and he would not bow. So they told Haman. They told him in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. Is he going to get away with this? You're going to let this go on, Haman? For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. This is the first time that came out in the story publicly. You remember he had been telling Esther not to reveal that. Now he's told them. Now I want to move on to talk about Haman's anger. And if you've ever been under the authority or influence of someone controlled by their sheer anger, you will relate to the position of the, the Jews, Mordecai in particular here. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down, or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. All the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. There's your introduction to Haman. Now you think about Proverbs 6. Verse 16 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Go in there and read the list. It's, it's almost as though you know how we all have life goals, a bucket list, things that we want to do. You follow the story of Haman. It's almost as though his bucket list was to make sure he accomplished all of these abominations, all these things that the Lord hates. That's, that's Haman. Now, what would come of this? Go on to verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus. Weird place to pause, but I think there's something to bring out here about life and its timing. You notice it said in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus. I want to trace the timeline a little bit again, because sometimes we read through the Bible and we imagine that these miracles and happenings happen one after another. And we're like, hey, my life doesn't work like that. I'm often waiting in this middle ground, like wondering what's going on here. What's God up to? So were they in many of these cases. Let me show you what I mean in the book of Esther. We talked about how chapter one, when Xerxes had that great feast, that was the third year of his reign. And four years go by till chapter 2, when Esther's chosen queen. Now, in this chapter, we learn we're in the 12th year. So five years have gone by with, with Esther as queen and Mordecai at the gate. And maybe they're like us. What, what's going on here? I wonder what God's up to. I'm not, not seeing the big picture for, for five years. But what happened in this 12th year? Look, at, look in verse 7. It says, they cast pure. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. These were like 
dice that Haman and his men are casting, and archaeologists have actually found some of these at this palace in the citadel of Susa. We don't know that they were the same ones Haman and his guys were throwing, but it was a common practice for leaders to throw these dice to make their decisions. And it says they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, you notice that they were casting these in the first month, and they landed on the 12th month. I want to bring out something here. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You see, God was even in control of where these dice landed and which month. And as you look at how things happened, the fact that it landed months later, what did that do? That allowed time for God's chosen plan of deliverance to be carried out. Now, if it had landed on the next day, could God have brought about a deliverance another way? Sure, he's God. But this is how he was choosing to work. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people. And I got to pause here. When you, you ever listen to your audio Bible on your phone? The ESV version of this, they... The guy really reads Haman's part like he's a bad guy. Like, I can't read this without hearing the guy on there. It's like, there is a certain people. Scattered abroad and, and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they don't keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. You see what he's doing? It's really him that hates the Jews, but he's trying to... Tell the king, these are all the reasons you should hate him too. Verse 9, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Now I want to move from Haman's anger, which we're seeing clearly, to Haman's authority. Watch what the king does. Verse 10, we already know he's second in command, right? goes to another level here. The king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the, the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. By giving that ring, that was the king's approval. He said, you do what you want to do, put my stamp on it and get it done. He had all the worldly empire and the Persian empire at his hands. Now I want to move on to Haman's announcement. What would he do with that? Verse 12, the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province. I want you to remember that phrase. That's important every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Now history tells us there were Jews scattered in many places around this empire, but when we read every province, do you know that that includes Jerusalem where those 50,000 or so faithful Jews had gone back to begin the rebuilding? They, they got that letter there, verse 13, 
Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. I'm going to pause and focus on this last phrase of the chapter. It says, the king and Haman sat down to drink. The, the leaders are yucking it up. But the city of Susa, where the people lived, was thrown into confusion. Now think about that confusion. Think about you're a dad or a mom in a Jewish family. And up till now, things have been relatively peaceful for you under the Babylonian and then the Persian empires. And all of a sudden, this letter shows up in town. Imagine looking across the table at your five-year-old talking with your wife what is going on here where did this come from and you start to see how some of those Jews may have had that cracked window God where are you in the middle of this how how can a man like Haman rise to power maybe you're there today God how can you allow this or or that what is going on and now, now you see clearly what they need delivered from, right? Right? Haman's evil plot to destroy them all. But I want to talk to you about what was at stake. What was at stake if all of the Jewish people were to be destroyed? What's at stake here? And I want to share at least three things. The first thing is God had promised their return and rebuilding of the promised land, which, which was going on, right? He had promised it earlier through Jeremiah 29.10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Many of them were back there doing this. And what you see, God's promises were at stake if they all were to be destroyed. The promise of return and rebuilding. But not just that. He had promised them an eternal kingdom. That was at stake too. Think of what some of the prophets had said to them. Jeremiah 31, 38. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt on to verse 40, it shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. There's a day coming when it's not going to be overthrown anymore. That's at stake. But to go further, when we talk about this eternal kingdom he had promised, Isaiah 65, 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. How can he be glad in his people if they're all destroyed? No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. 
The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. His eternal kingdom, he had promised, is at stake. They're all destroyed. Last but not least, he promised that a Messiah would come from the Jews. Not only to bring salvation to the Jews, but also to Gentiles. And now you can see where this story becomes very personal to every one of us sitting in this room. You can trace that promise of a Messiah all through the Old Testament. Back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, Genesis 12, 3. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How would that happen? Follow the thread. We'll get to the answer. You get to Genesis 49. Jacob is blessing all of his sons and he gets to Judah, the father of the tribe of Judah. In Genesis 49.10, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Someone from Judah would hold the royal scepter and the obedience of the people would be his. It narrows down to David, who's of that tribe in 2 Samuel 7, verse 13. As God tells him about one of his descendants, he says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. And we get more specific as we get into some of the later prophets, right? Micah 5, 2, You, O Bethlehem who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and he shall be their peace. And last but not least, you get to Isaiah, and you read in chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's David's father, right? And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. On to Isaiah 53, 2. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Verse 5, what does it say? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The Messiah, salvation itself was at stake because he was promised to come from the Jewish people. So what do we do at moments like that? Maybe you're there this morning where it feels like everything God has promised is at stake because you you can't see what's going on right now. Your window's cracked. I'm going to share four things. And I believe it's likely that many faithful Jews around the empire We're doing some of these very things in the middle of this storm. Number one is look deeper. Realize there is a spiritual battle going on. Why do I share that here? Well, let me ask you a couple questions. What empire are we in, in Esther? The Persian Empire, right? Want to go back some decades to Daniel. Daniel had actually spent some time in this very city of Susa. We learned that from chapter 8 in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 10, he got a visit from an angelic messenger. 
And I want you to read what this angelic messenger says to Daniel in Daniel 10, verse 12. Daniel writes, he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Now listen to this. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, who's that? Michael, the archangel. Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So you see, there's this spiritual battle going on as a messenger from God comes to give Daniel a message about God's people. He's opposed by someone called the prince of Persia. I agree with the scholars who say this is a demonic power at work in the realm of Persia. You see, later on in this same chapter, Daniel 10, the angel tells him, verse 20, Now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. There's a spiritual battle raging around God's people. And I don't doubt that it may have been this very prince of Persia or one of his cohorts inspiring Haman to his wicked plan against God's people. And I wouldn't doubt for a second that that's true from Haman to Hitler, as you see God's people come repeatedly under assault. And I want to talk to you this morning. I believe the same is true in the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. There is a battle raging around you. And we need to remember that when we're in those moments where it looks like God's promises are at stake. How do I know that? Paul, Ephesians 6, verse 10, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I don't doubt that there are people involved in your trials, but we need to look deeper and realize that the real battle is spiritual. And you know what that does? That changes the way we fight. We are not going to fight human fire with human fire. We're going to get on our knees and pray. We're going to armor up with the armor of God and be strong, not in our own might, but in his might. I'm going to tell you a couple examples where this played out this week. We have our, our weekly prayer meeting. And a week ago Wednesday, Aaron was going through some stuff with the school. He's on staff here, if you didn't know, our worship leader. The airport's expanding. And because they're expanding... The city was talking about changing approvals on things which were already approved on this campus for the elementary building. And Aaron, as he was talking to me, he said, I know God's in control. I know he can accomplish his will. If this is not his will, he's got something better. And I also know, he said, when, when you're pursuing God's will, you got to expect to be countered. There's a spiritual battle going on. So he said, let's pray about that tonight. Wednesday night, we took that to prayer. Thursday, he texted. There was a city council meeting today, and they gave us the green light to proceed. 
That's how you fight the spiritual battle. Prayer. Armor up. They didn't go in there and fight fire with fire, getting all angry and nasty. They took it to the Lord. I think about my parents who just got here yesterday. We were in their dining room in Prescott Valley as they, they saw their place. We're excited about that. But I think about something in that last stretch. The movers, as they're on the road, kept changing the time because they drove separate. They had all their stuff with the moving company. And the, the moving company continued to call them and change the dates. And it got very stressful at parts of their journey. And I remember talking to my dad one day. And he said, I wouldn't d doubt but that at least some of this is, is spiritual battle. He said, you know why? Because I've been praying intently about what ministry God would have for us as we get out there. What's, what's God want us to do for his kingdom in Arizona? So what did we do? We, we took it to the Lord in prayer. When, when we look deeper and realize there's a spiritual battle going on, we fight differently. Look deeper. Second one, look up. Look up. Even though your window's cracked, look up with eyes of faith to what you know about God. What you know about God. Psalm 73. I can't read the whole thing, but it's a great example of that. A man named Asaph was disillusioned. I don't know what he was going through, but I relate to his words sometimes, and maybe you do too. Verse 2. He says, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. He's looking at the wicked people like, look at what they're getting away with. And it doesn't seem like you're doing anything. Have you ever been there? Are you there? <laughs> There's this turning point. There's this turning point that we got to follow him to. He looked up. Verse 16, later on, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, and it can be, until I went into the sanctuary of God. The eyes of faith, he, he's in God's presence. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Oh, it may not be my timing, but God, I trust in your perfect timing. You will right every wrong I trust you and he lands in a really good place verse 27 he said those who are far from you shall perish you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you but for me it's good to be near God I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works and that is really the choice before us today in Jesus Christ am I one of those far from God or have I taken refuge in him through faith in Jesus Christ? I want to give you some other truths that some of those Jews around the empire may have been holding on to as they prayed in their homes. Think about what had been written in Isaiah 46, 9. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Can you see him reading that and saying, God, I don't see it, but I, I'm reaching out to you. I'm trusting that you will fulfill your purpose. Jeremiah 32, 17. Jeremiah says, ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. 
nothing's too hard for you. Not even this Haman guy. Psalm 29, 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Life feels like a flood right now. God's above the flood. He's above it. One of my favorites, Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Can you see him holding on by faith to his word? Look deeper. Look up. Look back. Look back. When you're going through it right now, one of the best things we can do is look back at his past deliverance in our lives. I see that in Psalm 77. Did I tell you I like the Psalms? Psalm 77. Listen to where he's at in verse 2. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. Have you been there at night, 3.30 in the morning, something weighing on you, and your soul just refuses to be comforted? That's where this author's at. And then he gets to a really pointed question. Verse 9, he says, Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? He's pretty raw and real. But he gets to this turning point. Verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I don't see what you're doing right now, but I'm going to meditate on what you've already done. And one of those was, Verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And I can't see what you're doing now, but I'm going to hold on to that. I feel just as trapped as they did at the Red Sea, but you're the same God that was there. I trust you. And listen, it's important for us to recall the ways he's worked in our own lives, but I think this is also where we need each other. You know why Hebrew says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together? It's not just so the pastor can keep a, a naughty list. We don't do that here. It's not like, some, oh, you know, it's for it. Author of Hebrews tells us gather together to encourage one another as the day draws near. He would not tell us that unless we needed that. Not, he knows, and I know, and you know, that sometimes when you're in the middle of it, it is hard to even think about the ways he's delivered you in the past. You need a brother or sister to come along and say, let me, let me share some things with you. That's why next week we're going to have a couple testimonies up here after we preach through Esther chapter 4. We need testimonies from each other. And what I love about these testimonies coming, sometimes we need the testimonies where we see the answer we're praying for, like, like the healing. And, and God can do that, and he does. But at least one of the testimonies we're going to hear next week is one of those in-the-middle testimonies. I'm in the middle of the trial right now, but God is working, and I want to tell you how. Sometimes we need those from other brothers and sisters in Christ. Next, look forward in faith. Look forward in faith. Psalm 57. And I'd encourage you to read these whole psalms. I'm just giving you the Cliff's notes. David writes this in verse 2. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose. For me. Okay, he's crying out. 
But who's he crying out to? He says, the God who fulfills his purpose for me. You're like, yeah, big deal. You know when this happened? When he wrote this? At the top of Psalm 57 in your Bible, as in mine, it says he wrote this when he fled from Saul in the cave. He was on the run for his life when he said, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. I love that. Everything human around him told him, no, it's not going to pan out. But he lifted his eyes to God, God who had promised, you will rule over my people. And he held on to it in the middle of the trial. Can will we have that kind of faith in our God? Despite everything I see around me, I know his promises. And I know he will keep his word. He will fulfill his purpose for me. Listen, if you're discouraged today, I want to encourage you to look forward in faith. The war is won. And the final consummation of that victory, it's coming. It's coming. 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about the Antichrist who will rise. Verse 8 says the lawless one will be revealed. It doesn't stop there. It says whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Look forward in faith. What about that spiritual battle with Satan and his minions? Look forward in faith. Revelation 20.10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Listen, I don't know if the window's cracked in your life as you look to God. The, the, the vision's obscured. I want to share with you about a, a woman named Lena Sandell as we close. Lena Sandell is Swedish. She was born in 1832. Her and her dad were close. So close that they ministered for the Lord together. One day they were together on a ship on the ocean and the ship lurched and her father was thrown overboard and her last earthly sight of her father was watching him gasp for breath as he, he drowned before her very eyes said, what would she do with her hurt and confusion her own cracked window this guy ministered for the Lord she looked to the Lord you say how do you know that well, she wrote a hymn you may have heard called Day by Day and with each passing moment, several years after his passing. And I want you to listen to her words. Day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. Every day the Lord himself is near me with a special mercy for each hour. All my cares he gladly bears and cheers me, he whose name is Counselor and Power. I stopped at the end of chapter 3, even though there's a part of all of us that wants to get into chapter 4 and start to see the deliverance, right? Because that's how life is sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't come just like that. Sometimes we're in that waiting place, but 
as you think of her response to her own pain, when you think about your own cracked window, and I want to ask you as we close, just will, will you commit to do those four things by the power of the Holy Spirit in the middle of your trial? Will you look up to the, the faithful God who always keeps his promises? Will you look deeper and, and realize there is a spiritual battle being waged and begin to fight differently? Will you look back to his past deliverance? And if you can't see it right now, grab another believer, maybe even before you leave today, maybe in the prayer corner, maybe right next to you and say, I need some encouragement. We look forward to the consummation of the victory that has already been won. Lord, I thank you so much. So much for for chapters like this. It sounds weird to thank you for them, but we appreciate you putting them in there because life on this fallen planet is like this sometimes. And when we read the scriptures, we find people in situations that we can connect with, people that hurt and question and wonder what you're up to. But I pray this morning for anyone that's especially discouraged or disillusioned that this truth about who you are the God who is faithful, the God whose purposes will stand would encourage them today. And Lord, I pray for any that, that heard that, that dividing line of those who are far from you and those who take refuge in you would know the hope that is in Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life who died for their sin and rose again for their salvation and their victory. Draw them to relationship with you, that refuge that we all need. And help us be there for each other. Help us have our eyes aware when a brother or sister's windows crack to come alongside them with a, an arm, an act of love, a prayer, a testimony. May we be the body together, the body of Christ. Lord, I, I pray as we close with our offering today that that would be one more expression of our worship and our trust in a God who is sovereign and who is working in every situation according to the counsel of his perfect will. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.